Thank you for the feedback on this series. It's been If God, Then What? Had two great weeks when Jeff was looking at the issue of suffering, Cy Beaumont last week at the issue of other religions or religion, both brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Listen to them online. And today we have Lizzie Coyle who will be speaking. Let, steady, just hold back. Let me do this introduction properly. Lizzie Coyle is the Youth and Schools Outreach Officer and Research Assistant at the Faraday Institute for Science and Religion, Cambridge. She is also coordinating their new project to produce children's books and media which communicate a positive interaction between science and faith, as it should be. Lizzie holds a degree from Cambridge University specializing in evolutionary and behavioral biology and also covering geology and the history and philosophy of science. She also leads us in worship here, week in and week out, brilliantly. She's an incredible servant of this house, and I mean that, the way she serves. And on occasions, does an absolutely fantastic mean Princess Elsa impersonation, as she did yesterday in Frozen. Would you please let it go for Lizzie Coyle. sure how to follow that. I feel, I feel like maybe I should just go and sit down and that's, that's enough. Um, I'd written in my notes here to say thank you Steve for your kind introduction. Um, so I'm really glad you actually said some nice things, otherwise that would have been really awkward. <laughs> uh, first thing to say is, as Steve just said, we have had some fantastic talks in this series already. If you haven't had a chance to listen to them, do go to the website, have a listen to Jeff and Sai and what they've been saying. Because this is a really exciting series. When I first heard this series was happening, I was, I was thrilled that it was happening, really excited it was happening so early on in being in the building. Because what this series does is it gives us an opportunity to explore questions that not only uh, allow us to look at what scripture says, what the Bible says, and apply it to our lives, and think about, well, how do we, how do we really get to the bottom of these deep questions and think about it for ourselves? But it's also a really good way to look at these questions and think about well, how can we equip ourselves to talk to our friends and family and neighbors and colleagues, the people that we're going on every week about, oh, invite them to the building. All the people who've seen this big new shiny building going up and are wondering what's happening, but might have questions about Christianity, might have questions about church and God and what it's all about. So our hope is that this series is actually, as well as equipping and inspiring each of us to think about these questions more deeply, will actually inspire and equip us all to be able to talk to our friends and family about it. Um, so that's what I'm hoping to do this morning with this question of science and faith and how they work together. It's a question that can be quite controversial. Uh, it can be something that people get really quite animated about. And it's something about which people have a lot of different opinions. And that's okay. I'm going to give two disclaimers before I start. The first is that I'm not going to answer all of the questions. Uh, because I only have about half an hour to speak to you, and I don't know all the answers. <laughs> this is a topic which covers a huge number of questions. Questions like, well, what do the Big Bang and evolution have to do with creation? How do we understand that? What should we do about what science can do about uh, genetically modifying food sources and uh, IVF and designer babies and all these kind of things? Endless questions that come up. And I'm not going to go into detail about all of them this morning. In fact, I'm not really going to go into detail about any of them this morning. What I'm hoping to do is give kind of a broad overview of one of the ways that we can see science and faith working together quite generally. How we can look at what science is and what it does, what faith is and what it does, and how they fit together. To try and get us past the point of just being slightly scared to approach the question. 
and to the point where we can actually begin to approach it, begin to look at it, and begin to explore a bit more some of those detailed questions that come up. I've actually put some uh, links in the end of your notes, so when you do come up with all your questions and you want to know more about specific things, those are excellent places to go and look. This is not just bypassing me doing all the talking, but it's just a really, really good way um, of actually finding out more about this topic that I'm only going to give a very, very brief and general overview to this morning. So that's the first of the disclaimers. The second disclaimer I want to give is that actually this question really doesn't matter all that much. It's really, it's really not that big of a deal. And that might seem slightly strange, given that you've just heard that actually I spend most of my life talking about this question, um, and that I'm standing up here talking to you about it now. But the reason that I say that is because this is a question that lots of people think is really important. This is something that people get very, very animated about, often very upset about. It's one of the biggest causes of people seeing the church particularly as a group who are often angry, are disagreeing with each other and other people, and, and it all can get very, very ugly very quickly. And I think that's a massive shame, because this really isn't that big a deal. Because if you're a Christian, or if you're looking at the Christian faith, you'll know that the central point of Christianity is Jesus. The Bible makes it pretty clear that the only thing that it's really, really worth getting your head around is the fact that actually Jesus came to earth in order to allow us to have our right relationship with God. That's the central point of Christianity. That's the only thing that really matters. And so compared to that, this question is nothing, really. Sure, it's interesting. I'm hoping you're kind of interested in it because you've got me for the next sort of half an hour talking about it. But compared to understanding who Jesus is and what he's done for us, this is nothing. And that actually has a really big influence on the way that we talk about it. Because as Christians, we're called to live like Jesus. And that means living and loving and talking with grace. It means actually when we're talking about this question, we need to pay more attention to the people that we're talking to than getting our point across. It's far more important that we care about the people in front of us than that we get our point across to them or that they think we're right. So it's really not that big a deal. So the question then I suppose is, well, why am I bothering talking about it at all? Does it, does it really matter at all? And actually it does, because this question's a little bit different to some of the others that we've covered in this series. Most of the others so far have been introduced with the idea that, for a lot of people, they're really happy with the idea that God exists, and then they have some questions about, well, what does that mean for me? This one's a little bit different, because this is a question that actually, for a lot of people, they see it as a question of whether or not God exists. It's a really, really common narrative in our culture and a really common understanding that actually science has done away with a need for God. Often if you just walk up to somebody on the street and ask them what they think about God, they'll turn around and say, oh, well, science has done away with all of that, hasn't it? It's a really easy answer, and it's one that a lot of people hold. It's really popular in the media, really popular in uh, publishing, endless sites and blogs and everything on the internet, giving that kind of idea that we don't need religion anymore, we don't need God anymore, because science has done away with it. And that's one of the reasons that actually it is really important to look at this question. Because there's such a common narrative that science has killed God. I quite often give talks to, to groups of young people or, or whoever under the heading, Has Science Killed God? Partly because it's a really attention-grabbing title that gets people along, but partly because it enables me to give a slightly interesting answer. Because it allows me to give my intro and then say, well, of course, 
you're all expecting me to turn around and say, of course science hasn't killed God, and here's a list of reasons why. But it also allows me to give a couple of examples of some ways that I actually think science has killed off some ideas of God, and why I think that's a really good thing. And I'm going to give you one of those examples right now, uh, which is to reference an idea called the God of the Gaps. This is an idea of God that relates to the gods of the ancient world. Now, you'll all know about the gods of Greek mythology and Roman mythology and Norse mythology, all those gods who kind of existed as an explanation for things in the natural world. So this ancient people would see a mountain chucking out fire and lava and smoke and stuff and be like, oh, the god of the mountain must be angry with us. Or they'd see a massive storm and say, oh, the god of the sea must be angry with us. And they'd work to appease those gods, and that was the way that they understood the world. But there's a problem with that kind of idea of God. Because now that we understand plate tectonics and volcanoes, now that we understand atmospheric pressure and, and how the sea works, suddenly we don't need those gods anymore. Those ideas of God get squashed out. Those, those gaps that those gods lived in are closed up. And so those gods are gone. And that's the kind of idea of God that a lot of people think that we believe in. There's a wonderful quote from uh, Richard Dawkins, who I'm sure many of you have heard of. And his quote is, well, we're all atheists with respect to almost all the gods in history. Some of us just go one god further. And the reason I love that quote is because it allows us to ask the perfect question. To say, well, then who is that one god? What's the difference? Is there a difference? What's the difference in that one god that means that actually millions of people have based their lives on believing in that one God for thousands of years, not despite the development of science, but throughout and actually contributing to the development of science. What is it about that one God that's different from all of those other ideas of God? And I think that's a really good place to start, because then we say, well, okay, who is the God of the Bible? Who does he claim to be? And if we start to look at it, we see that the God of the Bible doesn't claim to be a God who's the explanation for the things that we can't understand any other way. He doesn't claim to be just a, a gap filler. He doesn't claim to, to be just, you know, a kind of explanation for something we can't understand yet who's going to get smaller and smaller. The God of the Bible claims to be the ultimate author, sustainer, and creator of everything in existence. Everything that we know about and understand and everything that we don't yet. All the stuff that, that we have some understanding of, the stuff that we're just beginning to. He's, he's the god of the volcanoes. He's the god of the rivers and the seas. He's the god of the gibbons and the artichokes. He's the god of, of dark matter and antimatter and things that we're only just beginning to get our minds around a little bit. And when we do understand those things, he'll still be the god of them. And he'll be the god of all the other things that we begin to get a bit of understanding of. That's the idea of God that we're given in the Bible. So it's a very, very different idea of God from the idea of God that actually lots of people, including Richard Dawkins, think that we believe in. So even if you don't believe in that idea of God, it's really important to actually get our heads around, that's what we mean, that's what we're talking about when we're talking about God. So within that understanding, the understanding that actually God's the ultimate author, sustainer, creator of everything, the things we can understand and the things we can't, where does science fit into that? Rather than becoming something that kind of contradicts ideas of God or fills in those gaps and squashes God out of the picture, science becomes a way to explore what he's made. It becomes a way to, to understand more of his creation, to discover more of how incredible it is to see God as creator by understanding 
more and more and more of what he's created. Now, I think we can quite often uh, have a little bit of fear that actually if we understand things better, if we know how things work, we'll somehow lose some of the sense of wonder in it. We'll lose some of the, the magic of it, if you like. This is something that came home to me yesterday when we were all up here dressed as characters from Frozen and singing along and surrounded by many versions of ourselves just adoring us because they thought we were, you know, Queen Elsa. Um, it's really exciting. I'm sure we were having more fun than the kids. But actually, we were really careful not to let them see us out of character or half in costume and all those kind of things because it would ruin the magic for them. For most of them, the little ones, it would just really confuse them, probably. But actually, God's creation isn't like that. It's not the case that if we understand more about it, if we see what's really going on, we lose the magic, we lose the wonder. Because when we look deeper into it, the more that we find out, we find more wonder. I've got a couple of beautiful quotes that, that talk about this. There's one from uh, Augustine of Hippo, who's an early Christian bishop and theologian writing in about the fifth century, who says, whatever pleases you in a work of art brings to your mind the artist who wrought it. Much more when you survey the universe does the consideration of it evoke praise for its maker. So what he's saying there is, when we look at the world, when we explore it, when we look deep into it, actually what it does is it shows us God. It evokes praise for our creator. It evokes praise for the maker of everything around us. So this is tying in with this question that actually creation speaks of the creator. And science tells us part of the story. Science is a really, really exciting way of exploring God's creation. What I haven't done yet is get really geeky about science. Um, it's about to happen. <laughs> because I think science is brilliant. It's really fun. <laughs> there are so many things that we can do with it, so many things that it tells us about, so many things we can understand and discover through this particular way of exploring the world. Some of the things that science tells us about are that we think there's about 300 billion stars in our galaxy. That's a huge number. I can't even begin to get my head around that number, but just let that settle for a minute. So about 300 billion stars in our galaxy. We're a sort of fairly average-sized galaxy. We think there's about 100 billion galaxies in the known universe. That's not even the whole universe, just the bit we can see so far with the telescopes that we've built. I have this beautiful picture of God in my head sitting there going, come on, guys, build a bigger telescope. You can do it. Yeah, come on. Come on, you'll get there one day. And then we, we build one that's slightly bigger and slightly better and can see a bit further, and we all go, wow. And he's like, yeah, come on, carry on. Carry on, there's plenty more to see. And it's not just about looking out into the universe and seeing how far we can see and how much we can see in the distance out there. If we come a bit closer to home, we have about six feet of DNA in each of our cells. DNA is the, the, the instructions that kind of build us and show what we look like and what we do and all that kind of stuff. There's about six feet in every cell. That's taller than me already. But if we put all of the DNA from all of our cells together, we get about 67 billion miles of DNA from one human body. That's about 150,000 round trips to the moon. That's a lot. That's, that's a lot of DNA. And there's so much more. So we can all do that kind of, wow, science is really cool thing. And actually, we're going to do a little bit of that now, because I always feel like I can't really turn up somewhere and claim to be a scientist and not do any science. Um, so what I want to do is a little bit of a demonstration to help us explore the kind of questions that science asks and science answers, the kind of thing that science does. 
And in order to do it, I need some cash. This is the bit where I start to sound a little bit like a magician or a con artist, um, or I just work out how much people here trust me. We got, I just need one note. Oh, that's perfect. Thank you, I'll take the 20, definitely. Uh, we'll see. Um, okay, this is the audience participation moment. Who can tell me anything about this? It's got the queen on it, fantastic. Anything else? It's worth something, it definitely is. Is it worth quite a lot to you, Rebecca? Okay, good, I hope. Uh, anything else about it? What's it made of? Paper, fantastic. Points to Sarah. Okay, uh, and what do we know about paper? It's made from trees. What was that? Josh, what did you say? It does burn. That is a really excellent thing <laughs> to know about paper. Okay, I'm quite excited by this lighter because it looks like a magic wand. It makes you feel even more like I'm doing a magic trick. Okay, so <laughs> paper burns. And one of the things that we do with science is we take stuff that we know about the world and we push it a little bit to find out more. So we say, well, okay, we know that paper burns, so we could just burn it, and that would be, you know, it would be fun, it would kind of corroborate what we know about the world, but we want to know more. So can anybody think of something that doesn't burn? I'll give you a clue. Water, <laughs> fantastic. So what happens if we take something that we know burns, something that we know doesn't burn, and set fire to it? Any ideas? Anybody thinking I'm actually going to do this? I came prepared. You worried, Rebecca? She's looking very chilled. I like it. Okay, so science, right? Take stuff we know about the world, push it a bit, test it, see what happens. Something we know burns, something we know doesn't burn. And a flame. Any ideas what's going to happen? It won't burn. Angie said so. That's the magic bit. Okay. Everybody's thoroughly mystified, and I'm glad of it. Thank you. Uh, any ideas what just happened? Well, that's cheating. Anyone who hasn't seen the trick before got any clue what just happened? Sorry? Some vapor just burned. Fantastic. Okay, so I'm going to give you a bit of a clue here. I did trick you a bit. This isn't water. It's kind of half water. Okay, so it's half water and half alcohol. So I'm really glad I didn't get so thirsty I had to drink some of it. <laughs> and what actually happened there is... The, the paper soaks up the water and the alcohol. The alcohol burns off, and the water keeps the paper damp enough that it doesn't burn up. So it's not even scorched, it's a bit soggy, smells a bit, but you'll be okay. <laughs> so it's a great explanation. I mean, it's a fun little experiment, and I get to show off a little bit of the magic. But um, it's a really good explanation of looking at the kind of thing that science does is it takes those kind of questions about the world, the kind of how does stuff work? What happens if we poke this bit of the natural world is essentially what science does. So it answers loads of our questions, but it doesn't do everything. Science is really, really good at answering some of our questions, but not all of them. 
By way of example, to explain this a bit further, I want you to imagine I've got a kettle up here, okay? Kettle boiling away on a flame. Um, I would have brought it with me, but I was already, you know, kind of heavy on the props. <laughs> so I've got a kettle boiling away on a flame. And you could ask me, oh, why is that kettle boiling? And I could say to you, the kettle's boiling because there's a heat source underneath it, and the heat source is uh, passing on energy through the conductor of the metal to the molecules of the water, which are getting excited and bouncing around, and they get to about 100 degrees C, and you get a state change from a liquid to a gas, and that's why the kettle's boiling. If we an answer straight from science, it would be a really good answer. But if you ask me why the kettle was boiling, I could also tell you, well, the kettle's boiling because I want a cup of tea. Now, anybody who knows me well at this point will be thinking it's very unlikely that the kettle is boiling because you want a cup of tea, because you hate tea uh, with a passion. But bear with me for the sake of the example. The kettle could be boiling because I want a cup of tea. Now, what we have there is two very different answers to this question. But what we don't have is a conflict. You're very unlikely to turn around and say, no, I don't believe you about all that energy stuff and the state change and all that kind of biz. The only explanation I will accept for that kettle boiling is that you want a cup of tea. And you're really very unlikely to turn around and say, no, I don't believe you that you want a cup of tea on the strength that the only explanation I will accept for the kettle boiling is that there's heat energy being transferred. In this situation, we're really very happy to take both of those explanations together and to see that actually we get a bigger and a better picture of what's really going on when we have them both together. So to dig a little deeper here, what we actually have is me wanting a cup of tea is providing a context of meaning and purpose to the situation. It's really explaining why the kettle is boiling, what purpose there is in the kettle boiling. And what the science is doing is it's exploring the mechanism of how that's happening. It's looking at the nuts and bolts, the bits and pieces of how it works. And that mechanism sits within that context of meaning and purpose. Now, this is all a little bit abstract at this point, unless you assign all the meaning and purpose in life to a cup of tea, which is entirely possible for some of you, I know. Um, many of you who can't get out of bed in the morning without a cup of tea, I'm looking at nobody, Amy Johnson. Um, but actually, that's the kind of relationship that I and lots of others think exists between science and an understanding of religious faith. Is that what religious faith does, what the Bible does, when it's talking about creation or anything else, is it gives us that context of meaning and purpose to life. It looks at what's actually the point of everything that's going on here. That's what it's about. That's what the gospel's about. It's what the whole Bible is about. It's what our lives as Christians are about. Is there's a deeper sense of meaning and purpose than what we see in the everyday. And where science fits in that is to say, well, hey, look, here's a way to explore the mechanism of how that stuff happens. So we've got that kind of relationship where religious faith, where the Bible, where Christianity talks about meaning and purpose, and science starts to give us some understanding of the mechanism. So we're beginning to see there that actually science is really good at answering some questions, but it can't tell us everything. Now, part of the narrative that we hear from society and a lot of this uh, idea that science and religion are in conflict comes from the idea that many people would say science can tell us everything, that science is all we need that it's the ultimate form of knowledge. That if you really want to know something, you ask a scientist. If you really want to get to the bottom of something, you stick it in a test tube and, and set fire to it, and you know a scientist will be able to tell you what's going on. But it's just not true. There are so many different and important ways of looking at the world, some of which come through science, and many of which don't. 
Science can tell us nothing about what Henry VIII used to like to eat for breakfast or uh, what we should do about starving children in Africa. It can't tell you whether somebody loves you. There are so many, many, many things that science can't tell us. And it's really important when we look at the world to actually figure out what questions are we asking? What type of question are we asking? And what type of knowledge do we need to employ? What type of method do we need to employ to explore it? If you want to ask a historical question, you need to use history to think about it. If you want to ask a scientific question, you need, need, need to use science to think about it. And if you want to ask a question about uh, religious faith, if you want to find out whether or not God exists, if you want to know whether God loves you and what that means, you need to look to something other than science in order to do that. So science and faith can fit together really nicely. They're not in conflict with each other because they're approaching different parts of the question. They're approaching different parts of the way that we figure life out. There's a couple of quotes to explore that. One from Sir Peter Medawar, who was uh, a very famous scientist. He won a Nobel Prize in medicine a few years ago. He was an atheist. And he said, the existence of a limit to science is made clear by its inability to answer childlike elementary questions, such as how did everything begin? What are we all here for? And what is the point of living? The beginning of scientific wisdom, I would argue, is an informed and respectful recognition of his limits. So what he's saying there is actually science is really good at answering scientific questions. But in order to even do science properly, we need to recognize its limits. We need to recognize what it does and what it doesn't do. And that's really, really fundamental to trying to figure out how it fits with faith. Now, that's not a new idea at all. This is an idea that's been around for hundreds, thousands of years. The vast majority of the people who were involved in establishing the science that we know today in around the 17th century were people who believed in the Bible, found it to be really important. We're talking people like Newton and Galileo and Faraday and Boyle and Kepler and Linnaeus. And I could go on. The list is almost endless of people who were instrumental in forming the way that we do and think about science and who, for many of them, would say they had a personal faith in Jesus. And even still at that time, science and faith were so much more wrapped up together than they are today. They'd write out their scientific works and, and they'd write out prayers and psalms alongside and in the margins and in the middle of their scientific understanding because that was how they looked at the world. It was looking at it and thinking, well, I believe that God's made this world, so I want to explore it. For them, science was worship. In the same way as we were singing this morning to God and praising him and, and pushing in to discover more about him and to honor him, Science is exactly the same thing. Steve said that I stand up here and sing and lead worship, and I do, and I love it, and it's very, very much a part of who I am and, and how I relate to God. But it's exactly the same when I'm doing science. Because actually, we worship God with every aspect of our lives, and exploring his creation, trying to understand how to look at it, how to look after it better, is part of that. And it's not just an idea that was held by people hundreds of years ago. For many people, they could turn around at this point and say, oh, well, you know, everybody was a Christian back then, so of course they all said that, but surely today people think differently. But today, there are countless people involved in the sciences at every level who have a really strong faith. Uh, I have a quote from uh, Francis Collins, who was the head of the Human Genome Project a few years ago. 
He's now the director of the National Institutes of Health in America. So he advises the US government on what science they should do. He's essentially got the biggest science-related job in the world. Uh, he's a Christian. He became a Christian at, uh, while he was studying medicine. And he says this, I think there's a common assumption that you cannot both be a rigorous, show me the data scientist and a person who believes in a personal God. I would like to say that from my perspective, that assumption is incorrect. That in fact, these two areas are entirely compatible. I have no reason to see a discordance between what I know as a scientist who spends all day studying the genome of humans and what I believe as somebody who pays a lot of attention to what the Bible has taught me about God and about Jesus Christ. Those are entirely compatible views. The God of the Bible is also the God of the genome. He can be worshipped in the cathedral or the laboratory. And so that's kind of underlining what I'm trying to say to this point, that science offers us a really exciting way of exploring God's world. And it absolutely doesn't take away from recognizing God as creator. It builds into that. It offers us a bigger picture of what it means to see God as creator. The more we understand, the more we see how incredible God's creation is, how deep it goes, how, how wide it goes, how intricate and complicated it is, and how beautiful it is for us to be a part of it. So the obvious question at this point, for, for many of you, I'm sure, is, well, if that's the view we've got, if God and science, then what about the Bible? Where does the Bible come into this? How do we take, how do we view what the Bible says about creation? If we believe, as we do here at C3, that the Bible is one of the ways that God chose to communicate his truth to us, then how do we view what it says about creation? Now, this is a point at which I'm going to reiterate my disclaimer that lots of people have different opinions about this. Lots of Christians have different opinions. I can almost guarantee there are many different opinions in this room, and that's okay. It's far, far, far more important that we take our cue from Jesus and work out how to talk to each other with grace, how to explore these questions in the freedom of the grace we know in Jesus, than that we agree on what we think about it. So I'm not here to try and tell you the right answer. Uh, I'm here to tell you a little bit about what I think the conclusions that I've come to over thinking about this for a few years. Um, I'd love to discuss with you any time about any of this, but please take away from this the main message that actually the most important thing in all of this is grace and love and living like Jesus. So saying that, generally when we think about creation in the Bible, we go straight to the first chapters of Genesis. We go straight to the, the story that we all know and love from when we were toddlers, of six days of creation and, and all of the pattern of that. And I'm gonna talk about that in just a minute. But before we get there, I think it's really important to actually remember and recognize that the Bible talks about creation in loads of different ways, in loads of different places, in loads of different styles. The Bible talks about creation. You've got a couple of examples in your notes, but we could look in Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Isaiah, Romans, Corinthians, and two Corinthians, Colossians, Hebrews, Peter, Revelation. We could look so pretty much anywhere in the Bible, and you see something about God as creator, about this world, this earth, as God's creation, and what that means. And those different parts of the Bible display a huge range of styles, a huge different ways of talking about creation. But what they all have in common is that they all point to creation glorifying God. They all focus on this sense of meaning and purpose, saying that, hey, God created stuff, isn't that cool? And it points us to worshiping God. 
God, you're glorified because of what you've done. That's the focus of them. That's the main focus of the way the Bible talks about creation. It's to draw us to that sense of meaning and purpose, of worship, to glorify God through his creation. So to come back to Genesis quickly, because I know that if I don't talk about this, I'm kind of letting the side down a bit. Um, As I said, I'm going to explain a little bit of my personal view, the view that I've come to uh, over the years thinking about this. You're very welcome to disagree with me as long as you do it nicely. (laughs) That's kind of the message this morning. Uh, So my personal view, and the view of many, many others, is that Genesis isn't trying to explain the scientific mechanism of creation. Those early chapters of Genesis are much more concerned with getting across the meaning and purpose of what's going on, in common with all the other places that the Bible talks about creation, rather than trying to get across a sense of mechanism. And this isn't about trying to make the Bible fit with our modern observations. It's not that I've gone and looked at the science and gone, oh, that's a bit awkward because it kind of disagrees with the Bible, so I'd better try and change my way of thinking about it so it fits and looks okay. That's really not what this is about. This is about having looked at the Bible, what it says, looking into those chapters of Genesis, thinking about the context, who wrote them, when they were written, why they were written, who they were written for, how they come across, all those kind of things. And I actually think there are lots of really good reasons for reading the early chapters of Genesis as conveying truth. I absolutely believe they're conveying truth, but I don't think they're conveying science. And that might seem a little bit strange for a start because, again, we've got this link between science and truth, and if you really want to know something true, you look at the science of it. But there are so many ways and so many places in life where we think of things as true without requiring them to be scientific. If I stood up here and I said to you, oh, my love is a red, red rose, you'd probably all get the point that I was in love with somebody, that I thought they were quite nice. But I doubt that you'd think I was actually in love with a flower. It gets across that sense that actually there's a truth here. There's a deep truth that I'm trying to convey, and actually there's more power to the way that I'm conveying it because it's not a scientific description. If I stood up here and gave you a scientific description of my love, it wouldn't do that, it wouldn't get that point across, it wouldn't give you that same sense of meaning in it. So to my mind, that's kind of what Genesis is doing. And I'm gonna really quickly give you a couple of reasons, um, actually why I think there's there's good reasons to see science as conveying truth, Uh, to see Genesis as conveying truth, but not scientific. So the first is that Genesis, those early chapters were written in a pre-scientific culture, Uh, Our best guess is they were written by Moses, uh, uh, conveying a message to the the ancient Israelites. And they had no understanding of atomic theory. They had no understanding of much of the science that we know today. And there's no reason for us to expect them to have had that. Actually, for them to have written down a creation account in terms of the science that we know today makes no sense at all. It wouldn't have made any sense to most of the people reading it then, It wouldn't have made any sense to most of us today, and it wouldn't make any sense in five, ten years' time when all the science we know today is out of date. So actually, to expect Genesis to have written a scientific account is, to my mind, a little bit strange. Um, It's written in a culture which didn't communicate using science. What they did do is communicate using poetry. And there's a lot about that early Genesis account that is very, very poetic, in line with Hebrew poetry of the time. There's a rhythm and there's a repetition to it. There's, there's symmetry to it. It describes these three occasions of forming spaces and three occasions of filling those spaces. There's even rhyming in it. The Hebrew words used for formless and empty are tohu vabohu. There's, there's a beauty and a, and a poetry and a symmetry to the way that it's written, which is 
in line with, with the poetry that I mentioned earlier, and also very much in line with the way that communication was done around the time that Genesis, those early chapters, were written. Another uh, quick point on this that actually I find really fascinating is the way that those early chapters of Genesis relate to creation stories of other cultures that were around at the time. There were lots of other cultures around. We had Babylonian cultures that we know a bit about that's talked about in the Bible. And they all had their own creation stories. And lots of them talked about their gods having to come down to earth and subdue great beasts in order to take control of the earth or creating mankind to be their slaves and do all the dirty work. And the Genesis account is radically different. That first Genesis account flies in the face of those creation stories, almost as if it were written to say, hey, you know your gods that you think had to come down and subdue these great beasts? Our God didn't have to do that. Our God even created the great beast. He made everything. He's the ultimate author, sustainer, and creator. Hey, you know your gods that, that made mankind to be their slaves and do all the dirty work? Our God didn't do that. Our God created mankind to be his friends, to be loved by him, to walk with him, to know that intimacy of relationship with him. So there's a radical difference in the way that it's written. And there's so much about the Genesis story when we start to look at it, when we look at it more deeply, that actually, for me, ties into an understanding of saying, well, I don't think it's trying to be a scientific textbook. I think it's trying to do something bigger and deeper than that. It leaves a space to explore the science, the mechanism on our own in a different way, and it's fascinating and really exciting to do that. But I don't think that the Genesis 1 account is trying to tell us the science on its own. But whatever you think about those early chapters of Genesis, whatever you think about what it's saying about the mechanism, and it's really okay to disagree with me, I think what we can all agree on is that what really comes through is the sense of meaning the sense of purpose, the fact that it's so clear that all creation speaks to and, and points to God, God's glory as creation, as, as the creator of everything. That's what comes through in the way that the Bible talks about God as creator in every part, in every message, in every style that it talks about it. It's pointing to God's glory. The band want to come back up on stage. To finish off, I want to refer to one really well-known, beautiful biblical reference that's in your notes, in Psalm 8, which talks about God's creation in a way that I just love. It says, When I consider your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. And for me, this really sums up what I want to get across this morning. Science is an incredible gift, which allows us to see so much of God's creativity and how amazing he is. But the more amazing that we find God as creator, the more that we discover about his world and his creation and what he's done, it becomes more and more and more incredible that he would care about us. At the beginning, I said this question really isn't that big of a deal. And that's because the really big deal is that whatever we think about creation, whenever we think about how God chose to do everything, that ultimate author, creator, and sustainer, who knows everything about the stuff we know and the stuff we don't know, cared enough about us that he entered his own creation. He became entirely subject to all of its laws and everything that he created and lived and was killed in order to restore the relationship that he wants with us. 
That's what it's all about. Regardless of what we think of this question, regardless of how much we discuss it, everything that we do, everything that we know, everything that we discover is about Jesus and the fact that he wants a relationship with us. That's what I really want you to hear this morning. Um, Let's reflect on that and think about it as we sing some of this last song and Steve will give us an opportunity to respond to that in a minute. Let's stand.